So Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, it says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. So we read the Lord did as he had said, and he did as he had spoken. Now that's always the case. The Lord is always going to be faithful to his word. If he's said it, he's going to do it. And that's something that you can bank on. You can have confidence in that. He always uh, fulfills his promises. And the Bible tells us that all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus for the believer. God is faithful to his promises and his promises will never fail. God has promised Abraham over and over again now in the scriptures that he's going to give Abraham a son. And Abraham's now 100 years old. And it's been 25 years or so since God has given Abraham this promise. How would you like to wait 25 years for God to fulfill his promises to you? You know, I have a hard time waiting 25 minutes. You know, I start, I start thinking, I need it now, Lord. I mean, what's happening? Why is the delay? God, where are you? And that's often where we get in trouble as believers. God says he's going to do something. But you know what? He also knows the right timing. It may not be the right timing right now. And because of that, we don't see from the heavenly perspective. We get impatient. God's not in a hurry. You know, we're the only ones that are in a hurry. You may have received a promise from God years ago. Maybe that promise was in regards to a son or a daughter. Maybe that promise was in regards to uh, something he wants to do in your life, something he wants to do in your marriage, something he wants to do in your family. You know, God is going to keep all of his promises, but he knows when the perfect time to bring those promises about. He knows when that perfect time is. And so God is willing to wait. His timing is always perfect. He's willing to wait, you know, because he's looking at a much, much larger picture than what we're looking at. Verse two, so Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age and at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. And I just want to take a quick minute now to point out some of the parallels between Jesus Christ and Isaac. Isn't it interesting that they were both promised beforehand, right? Way back 25 years ago or so, God promised Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, right? He promised Abraham that he would have a son. And Jesus also was promised way back in the Old Testament. Over and over again, we have the promise of the Messiah that a virgin would uh, bring forth uh, a son because she would conceive and bring forth a child, Isaiah 7, 14, that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. Many, many promises over and over again, promises that the Messiah would be born into the world. So we have that parallel between Isaac and Jesus uh, that they were both promised. We also should point out that there was a long interval between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise for both of them. We also need to note that both promises 
were absolutely uh, impossible, right? I mean, it was a miraculous event. Sarah's, Sarah, she responds to this, this uh, promise uh, in Genesis 18. She says, you know, therefore Sarah laughed within herself saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure with my Lord being uh, old also? I mean, this, she responds with bewilderment and amazement, like, what? This thing is impossible. But Mary had a similar response, too, when the angel told her that she would uh, be with child. Luke 1.18, then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? You know, again, both Sarah and Mary, they have this similar response of bewilderment, of amazement uh, and wonder. In both cases, uh, with Isaac and with Jesus Christ, in both cases, the promise was followed by a revelation of God's omnipotence. Genesis 18, 14, the Lord says to Sarah, uh, is anything too hard for the Lord? And in Luke 1, the angel says to Mary, for with God, nothing is impossible. I mean, just this beautiful revelation of God's omnipotence. Both Isaac and Jesus were promised to be born at an appointed time. Genesis 18, 14 says, at the appointed time, uh, I will return. This is the Lord speaking. I will return according to the time of life and Sarah will have a son. We also just read in Genesis 21, verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And then in the New Testament, we read Galatians 4, 4 and 5. We read, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Both Isaac and Jesus were named before their birth. That's another parallel. God had told Abraham to name his son Isaac, Genesis 17, 19. And God told uh, Joseph through the angel to name his son Jesus. We see that in Matthew 1, 21 and also in verse 25. Both were miraculous uh, births like I already mentioned. Both births were accompanied with great joy. We read in Genesis 21, verse 6. We're going to read it in verse 6. God has made me laugh, Sarah says. God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. And in Luke 2, 9 through 11, you see it every Christmas when you're watching Charlie Brown's Christmas, right? And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid then the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. So those are some of the parallels. I mean, there's a lot more. You can look into them yourself. Those are some of the parallels between Isaac and Jesus. Verse three, and Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. Then Abraham can, uh, circumcised his son when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And I find this so incredibly interesting. You see, the Bible is not a book of science. 
But when the Bible speaks about something scientific, it always speaks with 100% accuracy. Even if the scientific discovery hasn't yet been discovered at the time, why would God command male children to be circumcised on the eighth day? Why on the eighth day? Why not on the fifth day or on the 14th day? Well, symbolically, eight is the number of new beginnings in the Bible. So no doubt God had this picture in mind that through circumcision, this pagan uh, worshiping uh, man named Abraham, he would, he would come into a right or into a new relationship. And it would be a new beginning for him and his family uh, with the true and living God as they were circumcised on the eighth day. But science tells us, and we pointed this out, you know, some weeks back, science tells us that on the eighth day, vitamin K and prothrombin, which they're both blood clotting factors, they actually are at their highest levels on the eighth day. And I just point that out again to just illustrate the authority of the Bible, the accuracy of the Bible. You know, God's word, when it speaks about scientific things, it's 100% accurate. And we read, then Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. You know, we see Abraham's obedience here. He did what the Lord had commanded him. He demonstrates obedience to his son. He brings his sons up in the ways of the Lord. He circumcised Ishmael on the eighth day. He circumcised Isaac on the eighth day, <clears throat> just as God had commanded him. Abraham was a good dad. You know, he was a good dad, bringing his kids up in the instructions the Lord had given him. And we're going to look at that in just a second, the fact that that happened, well, a little more than a second, okay? But the fact that Abraham's efforts has on his boys. So Genesis 21, verse 5. Now Abraham was 100 years old when, <laughs> when his son Isaac was born to him. I mean, like, wow, 100 years old. I mean, Mick Jagger, I thought he was old when he had a kid. You know, Larry King, I thought he was old. And these guys don't have anything on, on Abraham. Verse 6. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And all who hear will laugh with me. It's no longer this laugh of doubting. She's not doubting anymore when she's laughing like we saw in the past. Sarah is speaking of a joy that's filled with laughter. You know, she has this joy that's filled with laughter. And it's going to be shared with everybody that knows her. And I hope you're picking up on the mood of this story, I mean, we can't miss this. This is just sheer joy. There's so much joy over this promised son. Sarah is laughing out of sheer joy and expects to share her joy with other people. I mean, it's so beautiful. It says, verse 7, she also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And we talked about this last week, about this regenerative, uh, restorative work that God must have done in Sarah's life, in her physical being. She's 90 years old and she's nursing a, a little boy here. I mean, it's pretty amazing. In fact, how amazing, how able 
is our God to do exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ask or even imagine. How amazing is our God? How able is our God? Is there anything that is truly too hard for our God to, to do? Well, you know, the overwhelming response to that question is no. Nothing is too hard for our God. He is able and willing to use all of his limitless resources on behalf of his children, on behalf of his people. Verse 8, so the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now, our culture is a little bit different. Weaning a child is not a reason to celebrate in our culture. But, you know, in this culture, it was really a big deal. The child has stopped nursing. The child is off the breast now. He's making this move from milk to meat. And it's a reason for celebration. And even though we don't celebrate the growth of our children in this way, you know what? It truly is a joy to watch your kids. And in in, uh, many of our cases, our grandkids, such a joy to watch them grow. I mean, our little grandson, Noah, it's like every day, you know, he's hitting another milestone. He's talking more. He's talking more clearly. I mean, it's just such a joy. In a spiritual sense, though, it's, it's such a joyous, beautiful thing to see people move from the milk of the word to the meat of the word. Growing in a relationship with the Lord. Growing in their understanding of his word. I mean, it's such a great thing to see young believers transitioning from going to a study every week because that's the only place they're getting fed to see them transition from that to this depth of understanding of God's word where they can begin feeding themselves. It's such a great thing to see in the spiritual sense. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, the writer to the Hebrews says, and if you want to turn there real quick, turn there real quick. Hebrews chapter 5. Maybe you want to look at these verses, okay? Hebrews 5 Verse 12 through 14, the writer to the Hebrews says, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The writer to the Hebrews, he's grieved by these believers. He says, you guys ought to be teaching others by now. You know, you guys should be discipling others. You guys should be teaching, you know, younger believers, younger kids, pouring yourself into other people. You know, he says, what a sad thing it is that you guys are still, you got a bottle in your mouth still. You're still little babies. You're still in the place where someone needs to be feeding you. And I wonder if that's not a word for someone tonight. Maybe you're in a place where you've been walking with the Lord for a while and you really should be discipling others now. You should really be pouring into others and seeing them raised up 
in their understanding of the Lord. You need to be stepping up to teach new believers. You know, maybe, you know, even think about taking a leadership role in the church, serving in the church in some capacity. You shouldn't just be taking in and not be giving out because that's not healthy, right? We can't just keep coming to Bible study every week, week in and week out, just drinking in, nursing on the word of God. We need to grow up in our walks and and move to the meat and begin pouring into others. There comes a time in each of our lives when we need to start teaching others and get off that bottle. And I want to encourage you, maybe it's time for you to, to get more involved in ministry. You know, maybe have a little Bible study over at your house. Maybe, you know, there's a neighbor kid. You know, you invite him over and just ask him questions of where he's at with the Lord. What does he think? And you open up the Bible and you teach him. You lead him to Christ. You disciple him. You see him grow up in the Lord. You know, we need to be people who are reaching out and inviting people to church. You know, we need to be people that are taking part and seeing others raised up for the work of the ministry, encouraging others to run the race for Jesus Christ. So in a spiritual sense, it's a beautiful thing to see people get off that bottle and begin to feed themselves and others in the word of God. Verse 9, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who she had born to Abraham, scoffing. So there's this big party, you know, that's being thrown for Isaac. And Ishmael, he sees that there's this great big to-do, and it's all about Isaac. And what does he do? He starts to mock Isaac. Ishmael scoffing and mocking ruins the situation for Sarah. She sees him, and you know what? Now it just ruins the party for her. And we see throughout the Bible, this is something that's worth noticing now. We see throughout the Bible that the Lord is very protective of his people in relationship to others mocking them. You know, mocking their joy, mocking the things of the Lord, mocking other people. It really does damage to other people, especially to younger people. You know, you can have a youth group And uh, all these kids come together and they're seeking to learn about the Lord. They're seeking to grow in their knowledge about the Lord. And if there's a couple of maybe more dominant kids, you know, that they just begin uh, to mock the group, you know, they can set a negative tone for that entire group. And what they'll end up doing is squashing the work that the Lord wants to accomplish in the lives of those other kids if they're allowed to continue mocking and scoffing uh, the other kids. You know, you have to deal with a situation like that. We should be very careful if we are those type of people who, you know, kind of mocks other people because the Lord takes notice of that type of behavior and he's not happy with that type of behavior. Remember David when he was dancing around, he's bringing, he's worshiping the Lord. He's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. First time it comes into Jerusalem and uh, his wife sees him, right? And she begins to mock him. And, you know, that, 
that caused tremendous problems in their marriage. You can read about it, 2 Samuel 6. It just caused tremendous problems in their marriage when uh, Michael just began to mock David for his worship, for his expression of worship to the Lord. Remember when Jesus went to Jairus' house to raise his daughter? Remember it said that he got in there and there were those people that were mourning. They were professional mourners. And he tells them, hey, listen, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And remember the professional mourner. Uh, mourners, they begin to laugh, they begin to scoff, they begin to ridicule him, right? They mocked Jesus. And both Matthew and, or sorry, both Mark and Luke record the events that they ridiculed him. And what does it say? I mean, they were professionals. Who's this guy? Come in and tell us that, that little girl's not dead. I mean, you know what? We know a dead body when we see it. And what does it say? It says that Jesus put them out. He put out the mockers. He put out the, those that were scoffing. Those people that ridiculed the, the, the faith of Jairus. Those people that will ridicule our faith. He puts them out. He got rid of the mockers and the scoffers before he did something miraculous. It's so important that we not be guilty of mocking others especially when it comes to their faith, because that's so precious to the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 10, Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised. You know, um, weaning takes about three years, right? right? In this culture, they weaned a child uh, off the breast when they were about three years old. And we just read that Isaac now was weaned. So it's been about 16 years. Ishmael's about 16 years old. He's this young teenager. And Sarah is saying to Abraham, you know what? It's important that these two boys aren't viewed as equals. You know, I won't have this, this work of the flesh. I won't have this work of the flesh mocking the son of promise. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. Here we could see that Satan, he promises, he, he always promises sin's going to bring fulfillment and it's going to bring pleasure. He's always telling us that it's going to be satisfying and fulfilling. But the devil promises and he never delivers. We actually see in scripture that sin brings about tears and grief and heartache. And that's what's going on here. Because of Abraham's sin in the past, it's come to this place. And Abraham is grieved. The idea of putting Ishmael out was very displeasing to him because Abraham loves Ishmael. And we mentioned it before. Abraham, or Ishmael represents the deeds of the flesh. And there can be no reconciliation with the flesh. The two cannot peacefully coexist. The flesh must be put away forever. <clears throat> Verse 12. <clears throat> Excuse me. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight. 
Abraham, he calls Ishmael his son. But God doesn't recognize Ishmael as a son. He says, do not let, let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Remember, Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to be his wife. But again, God doesn't recognize the works of the flesh. Over and over again, this is going to be a warning to us. God doesn't recognize the things we do in the flesh. And that warning, it's really going to become um, even more evident next week when we get into Genesis chapter 22, Lord willing. We need to be so very careful and mindful of this. Lord, I don't want to do anything in my own strength. I don't want to do anything in my own flesh. God doesn't recognize a man with two wives either, right? God's plan has always been for the beginning for a man to have one wife and for that man to cling to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So the Lord continues. He says, whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her voice for Isaac, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. God is, is saying, listen to your wife, Abraham, because the promise of the Messiah coming into the world is going to come through Isaac, not through Ishmael. It's going to come through the Jews, not through the Arabs. Sarah is right in this case, Abraham. A separation needs to occur. So verse 13, uh, God says, yet I will also make a nation of, and here it is again, the son of the bondwoman because of your seed. You may not realize it now. I don't know. But you know the Jews and the Arabs, they're blood relatives. I mean, they have different moms, but it's the same dad. Verse 14, so Abram, Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to her and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Beersheba is in the Sinai Peninsula. It's down there uh, by Egypt. It's, you know, the area where Hagar is from. And it's very hot there. It's very arid. It's very dry there. And it says, we read that Abraham rose early in the morning. This becomes a habit now of Abraham. From here on out, we're going to read that Abraham rose early in, in the morning in obedience to the commands of the Lord. <clears throat> now, I want to take a step back for a second. Um, I want you to know, when we read the Bible, we should always be looking for the literal meaning of what it is that we're reading. First and foremost, this is a story of, of a real man. His name is Abraham. And it's about a real son whose name is Isaac. And it's about another son. It's a real son. His name is Ishmael. And it's about a real woman. Her name is Hagar. This is a real story. This is something that actually happened. These events actually occurred in the past. And the story speaks to us about how horrible the consequences of sin are. That's how the story should be understood, first and foremost. But, interestingly enough, in Galatians chapter 4, 
Paul tells us the story has an allegorical meaning. It's a story about two covenants. One being represented by Hagar and Ishmael and the other one being represented by Sarah and Isaac. The bondwoman Hagar represents the old covenant and how the old covenant brings you into bondage. The old covenant is a picture of the work of the flesh where you're trying to be right with God based on your own efforts. And Sarah, the free woman, is a picture of this new covenant. And the new covenant is based on the promises of God and what he's done for us. And Paul talks about how that new covenant sets you free. These, are, these two covenants, they cannot coexist. You know, and it's interesting that Paul points that out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is a literal story, but it also has an a allegorical meaning for us. The scriptures in many cases, they have these allegorical or symbolic meanings to us, but we should always be looking for the literal interpretation of what we're reading first and foremost. Whenever the church has gotten away from a literal interpretation of the Bible, it's gotten into trouble. And again, the scriptures, they do use uh, symbolic speech. They do use, um, there are allegories to be found in them. For instance, when Jesus said, I am the door. I mean, was he this great big door swinging on hinges? Uh, you know, of course not. It can't be taken literally. Therefore, it must be symbolic. Jesus was speaking in a figurative sense. Whenever the scripture can be taken literally, that's the way it's supposed to be understood, first and foremost. When the church has gotten away from a literal interpretation of the word, whenever the church has got caught up in finding this secret meaning in the word, the result is always false teaching creeping into the church. And you can find that throughout church history. You should always be looking for the literal interpretation first. Again, there are these wonderful allegorical and, and symbolic pictures found within the scriptures. The Old Testament, um, in a very real sense, I mean, it's a picture book. It's just full of pictures pointing to New Testament principles. And, and we're going to see that again, Lord willing, like I said, Next week, when we look at Genesis 22, the picture that's painted of Jesus in Genesis 22, I mean, it's amazing. It's actually one of my favorite chapters. So we always look for the literal sense of what's being spoken about in the Bible first. There is an allegorical or a symbolic meaning at times, but we only look at those things secondarily. People who have only looked for these biblical allegories, you know, I tell you what, they make the Bible say whatever they want to say. You know, I heard one time that, uh, you know, somebody that just had given themselves to finding these secret hidden messages in the Bible. You know, they, they claim that the Bible predicts JFK's assassination. You know, I don't think that's really in the Bible. It certainly didn't help JFK. It would have been you know, better to maybe know about it before the fact. But uh, you know, when we understand the literal face value, 
the message of Scripture, right? Then we're protected from getting into these heresies, from getting into these errors, and getting into nonsense. After that, after we have the face value meaning of the word, then we can dig deeper and mine out uh, deeper meanings and greater truths. So it's so interesting to me. Paul says in Galatians 4, you're to cast out the bondwoman. They can't dwell under the same roof. Ishmael represents the work of the flesh. Isaac is the son of promise. And the typology here is that a person who walks in their own efforts, those who endeavor to please God through their own works of the flesh, you know what? They're going to rise up and mock those who are seeking to please God through faith. Those people that are walking in the flesh, they're going to mock and ridicule those people that are seeking to walk in the spirit. And that's just as old as Cain and Abel. We've read about it. You know, it's as old as Jesus and the religious leaders of his time. Grace and law, they cannot coexist. And you have to deal with, with um, one of them very strongly, or you're going to have to deal with the other one very strongly, because one will seek to rule over the other. And that's the message to us as Christians there in Galatians 4. And you can read about it for yourself. We're not to be relating to God under the old covenant, this legalistic requirements of the law while at the same time we're trying to relate to God on the basis of his, of his grace and the finished work of the cross. Those two don't mix. We can't relate to God both those ways. They're like oil and water. They're just not going to mix. So the teaching of Galatians 4 is to cast out the bondwoman and her son. We're not to live under the law as Christians. <clears throat> the law has its purpose. And it's to bring us uh, to the knowledge of our need of a Savior. It's to bring us to Christ, to show us that need. And the New Testament tells us over and over again, once we've come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we're no longer um, under the law, but we're under grace. Doesn't, uh, no, I should say, God doesn't want us living under the letter of the law. He wants us to be living in the newness of the spirit. That's Romans 7, 6. And I find it astounding, to tell you the truth. I don't, I don't understand people sometimes. You know, there are people that oppose the teaching of grace. I mean, there are people that have told me, if you teach grace, you know, Christians, are, if you tell them that they're no longer under the law, well, you know what they're going to do is they're going to get caught up in all kinds of sins. They're just going to have a a license to sin and just live willy-nilly and do whatever they want because God is going to forgive them. But it's not true. The message of grace, it sets people free. They no longer have to be that, that hamster on that wheel, you know, just work and work and work and never getting anything, just trying to do, do, do. You know what? You can't do any more to win favor. You can't do anything to win favor. We have favor with God because of his grace, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. The message of grace brings us to a place where we 
get afraid of doing wrong and breaking the heart of the one who loves us so very much. That's the result of the message of grace. Another picture that we see here is a picture of the spirit and of the flesh. Ishmael is a picture of that which is born of the flesh, while Isaac is a picture of a supernatural birth, uh, a spiritual birth. And we see a picture here of the conflict that occurs in each one of us between the spirit and the flesh. And we read about that conflict in the New Testament. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lost against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. Isn't it interesting how Ishmael is, you know, pretty quiet. You don't really hear much about Ishmael up until that point where Isaac is weaned. Right? It's when Isaac starts growing. It's when Isaac starts maturing. You know, it's when Isaac gets in that place where he begins to eat meat. That's when you see Ishmael start mocking him and laughing at him, warring against him. It's the perfect picture of what we see in the New Testament, a picture of the flesh warring against the spirit. And the Bible says that that conflict, you know, it's occurring in each one of us as we start to grow. You know, prior to growing in the Lord, the flesh was pretty quiet. But once you start growing in the Lord, once you start maturing in the Lord, once you start to eat meat, once you start to get serious about the things of the Lord, then you begin to see how ugly the flesh actually is. It begins to war. It begins to mock. It begins to ridicule the things of the Spirit. Verse 14, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water, putting it on her shoulder. He gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. So they're in the desert and it's hot. The sun is beating down on them and there's no more water. Ishmael, this young teenager, I mean, he's probably pretty weary. He's probably pretty weak. Maybe he's collapsing um, from just being under this unrelenting heat. So Hagar lays him underneath this little shrub bush to try to afford him some type of shade, to try to help him to get some type of comfort, some type of respite from the sun. Verse 16 Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. You know, the distance you could shoot an arrow. And she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. She says, man, I don't want to witness the death of my son. I mean, she's broken. She's weeping but she's also forgetting the promises that God had made to her in Genesis 16, that Ishmael would be a great nation. She's forgetting that. In verse 17, it says, And God heard the voice of the lad. Um, Hagar, she's weeping and crying out loud, but Ishmael, he's praying. And again, Ishmael, 
has seen his dad. Ishmael has been raised in Abraham's house. He's probably seen his dad praying. He's probably seen his dad worshiping the Lord. And we don't know what it is that Ishmael says here. I mean, put yourself in the situation. What would you say in this situation? Lord God of Abraham, where are you? Please help me, Lord. I mean, what would you be praying? Ishmael is probably a believer in the God of Abraham. When Abraham dies, Genesis 25, 8, when Abraham dies, we read that he's gathered to his people. And at 137 years old, when Ishmael dies, we read in Genesis 25, 17, the same exact words. He was gathered to his people. He was gathered to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, it's such a wonderful encouragement to me. It truly is. Um, Abraham wasn't a, a, a perfect father. He wasn't a perfect dad. He loved the Lord and he lived out his faith the best he could. He made mistakes, but he had an effect on his son for eternity. And boy, that's, that's just what we need to desire for our kids, just that we would have this effect on them, that they would see us living our lives for the Lord in such a way it would make it easy for them to step into that life of walking with the Lord. We also want to note that Ishmael, he, can't, he comes out of a difficult situation. You might say it's an abusive, it's an unhealthy situation. You know, the fighting that's going on between Sarah and Hagar all the time, you know. He just witnesses Sarah berating his mom and that, that conflict going on. Sarah telling Abraham to get rid of them. And then Abraham um, sending them away unjustly. It's a difficult situation. And maybe, you know, you find yourself in a difficult or abusive situation. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you and now you can just sit back and just say, why should I even try? Everything is against me. You know, I'm just, you know, not, I never get a break. I'm just giving up. You know, God is going to make a great nation out of Ishmael. And God has great plans for you also. Just because people are mean to him, it doesn't mean that God has given up on Ishmael. If your story is similar, I want to tell you, you need to press on towards the goal, press on towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God isn't finished with you. He'll perfect that which concerns you. And he will not forsake the work of his hands. Psalm 138.8. He'll complete the good work that he's begun in you. Philippians 1.6. No circumstance, no situation. There's not an obstacle in the world that can keep God from accomplishing his good plan for you unless you just quit and give up. You know, my encouragement to you is don't give up. You know what I heard somebody say one time, and it's always stuck with me. It's always too early to give up. And that's the truth. It's too early to give up. And we continue. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for 
God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Heaven is aware of your pain, Hagar. What ails you, Hagar? And before she has a chance to, to answer that question, what ails you, Hagar? Before she has a chance to answer, the words come to her, fear not. Hagar, there's no reason to be afraid. God is watching and God is aware of your pain. And God has heard uh, Ishmael's cries for help. And he sees, remember Hagar? Remember? God is the God that sees. He sees you, Hagar. God sees Ishmael. He sees, he knows where you guys are at. In verse 18, God says to her, uh, well, it's not God, it's the, what is it? It's the angel of the God. It's the angel of God. It's not the angel of the Lord. It's not a theophany. This is an angel. This angel says to her, Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. Now it's important to notice, prior to the to crying out to the Lord, there's no hope in the situation, right? But after crying out to the Lord, God opens her eyes, opens Hagar's eyes, and she sees this well. The circumstances are actually unchanged. God didn't miraculously create some well, all of a sudden, boom, there it is. No, the well has always been there. The well is has always been there. It's been waiting for her. But she couldn't see it until the Lord opened her eyes. Ishmael cries out to the Lord and heaven responds. Heaven is aware of every kid, aware of every mom, aware of everyone who's being abused, who's an outcast, who's in a difficult situation, who's going through the fire, as it were. You ever feel like you're just on the anvil and the hammer is coming down on you, God is aware of that situation in your life. And you may be in just the roughest situation imaginable, but you need to know and you need to be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God hears your heart, right? God hears your heart. He hears your complaint. He hears your pain. Heaven knows nothing escapes his sight. He is full of compassion. God opens, his, opens uh, Hagar's eyes and she sees this well. He provides for her. He has a provision for you. You know what? If you just turn your eyes, oh, get them off the circumstance, get them off the situation, and just turn your eyes to Jesus and look to him. He'll lead you. He'll guide you. He'll meet you. He'll provide for you. He'll care for you. You know, it's just such a beautiful reminder that constantly comes up as we study through the word. Verse 20. So God was with the lad and he grew and he dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. It means he became a hunter. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt, from her area. So we do see God keeping his promise here that he made 
to Ishmael to make a great nation out of him because the Arab people came through Ishmael. Verse 22, And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, <clears throat> some scholars think that this is not the same Abimelech that we read about in Genesis chapter 20. Uh, Abimelech, you might recall I said it's, an, it's a title. It's much like the title, like Pharaoh. It's not actually his name. But I tend to think it's the same Abimelech. I think that because it's only been three years since the last time we've read about Abimelech. But either case, this Abimelech, he acknowledges that God is truly with Abraham. Abraham's 100 years old and Sarah's 90 years old. And Abimelech knows that having kids at that age, you know, it's not an everyday occurrence. There's no explanation for it other than God. God is behind it. And Abimelech, he's been seeing, he's been watching, he's, he's seen everything that's gone on. And he's probably thinking to himself, this guy's God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. This guy's God protected his wife and afflicted me. So we couldn't have kids while she was in, in our house. This guy's God healed me when he prayed. And this guy's God given him a kid in his old age. Everything this guy does is blessed by his God. And Abimelech's probably thinking, I need to be on the right side of this guy and on the right side of God. Verse 23, now therefore, Abimelech says, now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me like you did in the last, the last chapter, Abraham, with my offspring or with my uh, posterity, but that according to the kindness that I've done to you, you'll do to me and to the land in which you dwell. And Abimelech is very, very wise here. Again, he sees that the future is with the God of Abraham. There's no future outside of a relationship with the God of Abraham. And Abimelech, he recognizes this. Abimelech wants to make sure before he dies that he and all of his descendants are on the right side of Abraham's God. And so because of that, he's very wise here. He's a very wise man indeed. There is nothing wiser than to be right with the God of the Bible. We can do nothing wiser in life than just to get right with the God of the Bible. In verse 24, Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants have seized. Abimelech's servants seized one of Abraham's wells by force. And in that part of the well... This would be a very big deal. I mean, the, the water in the desert there is very valuable. And Abimelech, he's graciously just overlooked this wrong in the past. And it may be that Abimelech, uh, sorry, that Abraham is testing Abimelech here to see how sincere he is. So he brings it up and Abraham says, okay, there can be, be peace between the two of us, but I want that wall back, or that, sorry, that well back. And like we said this last Sunday, you know, we can't believe words, right? We need to see the fruit. 
And in verse 26, and Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor have I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave it to Abimelech. And the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And Abimelech asked Abraham, hey, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you've set by themselves? And he said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore, he called the place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath. So Beersheba means a well of the oath. And Abimelech receiving these seven ewe lambs, it's his recognition that in fact the well does belong to Abraham. Verse 32, thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Now, just in case somebody comes up to you and says, you know what, the Bible's full of errors, you can't trust the Bible, and they point to this passage and they say, there were no Philistines in the land during this time, well, they would be correct. The Phoenicians, who were the uh, progenitors of the Philistine people, they haven't yet come down and settled in this area yet. There are some uh, historical records that they are trading in the area, at this time. But what's going on here is Moses, he's writing this story. And he's writing this, uh, as he's writing this historical record, he refers to the land of the Philistines so that we, the reader, will understand the area, you know, the general location that he's talking about, the, the general location that these events are taking part in. So verse 33, then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Now, this event, it should just leap off the page to us. It should just stand out for us because every other place we see Abraham builds an altar to the Lord. Here we read that Abraham plants his tree and he calls on the name of the Lord. And the wording would indicate that this is an act of worship. Even though Abraham has experienced this very heartbreaking event, sending his son away, he keeps walking with the Lord. He keeps continuing to worship the Lord. He doesn't let the circumstances deter his walk with the Lord. Problems within the family, problems at work, problems with your friends, they can have the effect of driving people away from God. But you know what? We need to allow those things to push us closer to the Lord. Abraham, he plants this tree to say to the Lord, God, I just love you. You know, that's what he's doing. Abraham is worshiping. And as he worships, you got to notice this. He receives new revelation, right? It's a revelation of who God is. He is the everlasting God, and it speaks of his faithfulness. Every place in the Bible where you read everlasting, it's always speaking of his faithfulness in the scriptures, how unchanging he is. The faithfulness, it's unchanging. It's eternal in nature, how God is eternally faithful to us. His faithfulness to you and I is everlasting and unchanging. Verse 34, And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines 
many days. So we're going to find out that Abraham, he's in this area for 27 to 30 years. In the next chapter, Isaac, he's going to be 30, 33 years old. And imagine for a second, again, put yourself in the story. Imagine for a second you're living uh, in an area and after 30 years of silence, just living quietly, worshiping the everlasting God, then you hear Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, the son that you love, and offer him as a burnt offering to me. I mean, if you heard that, what would you do? But what do we read about Abraham? We're going to read that he rose early in the morning in obedience to the Lord. It's become this habit of obedience in Abraham's life right here in this chapter. So just in closing, I want to point out this new revelation of who God is. This is the seventh description Abraham receives of God. It starts out with the God of glory revealing himself to Abraham. And the name here, the everlasting God is El Alom. El Alom. And God keeps revealing himself to Abraham through these different names. It's actually really beautiful. And we're going to see next week another, another new name that God is going to reveal to Abraham, Jehovah Jireh. And don't, don't you find it just interesting that when Abraham was worshiping, when he's expressing himself in worship, calling on the name of God, that God met him and gave him greater revelation of who he is. That will be your testimony. That will be my testimony. That will be our testimony too as we go deeper with the Lord in worship. You know, maybe tonight you might say, you know, I don't really know this God. You know, maybe you might feel like there's a need to know him before you face eternity. And And I want you to know this God has made a way for you to come into a right relationship with him. The God of the Bible gave his son to take your penalty so that you might come into, you know, that that loving, right relationship that he desires to have with you. You know, if you're willing to turn from your sin and turn to him in faith, you can be saved today. All you have to do is pray from your heart, just the sincerity of your heart. Again, I always say it. There's no magic words. There's no magic formula. If you're willing to turn from your sins and turn to God and live for him in faith, you can be saved today. You can be washed away from all of your sins. You just have to pray this prayer of sincerity from your heart, confessing that you're a sinner, confessing your need for a savior. And you know what? God has promised that he'll meet you. He'll meet you. He'll uh, forgive you, he'll cleanse you, and he'll set you free and give you the power to live for him if that's what you want. You know, if you want to be forgiven, all you need to do is, again, just pray, God, forgive me a sinner. I know I've transgressed. I know I've done wrong. And God, would you just forgive me? I know that you sent Christ to die on the cross to shed his blood that I might be forgiven of my sins, washed, cleaned. Lord, I know that he was buried in three days, uh, resurrected again. Lord, I believe it, and I pray you would come into my life and give me the power to live for you. If you'll pray that prayer, God will meet you, like I said, 
write your name and then his Lamb's book of life and you'll be a new creation. That's his promise. The old things are passed away. The handwriting requirements, all the wrongs you've ever done, they'll all be gone. Christ will give you his righteousness if you'll just pray. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this study, Lord. I thank you for the encouragement of this study. I thank you for just the promises, your faithfulness, your unchangingness. Lord, I thank you for the encouragement to to grow and to go deeper uh, with you. Lord, to be an influence to this world, pouring into others, Lord. God, would you make Calvary Chapel Truckee just a church of people that are worshiping you, receiving new revelation of who you are, a greater vision of who you are, Lord, and then just sharing that with people around us. Lord, do a work in our church. Do a work in each one of us, Lord. Draw us closer to you. Lord, give us a newfound love and appreciation for your word, Lord. Draw us deeper into, into a relationship with you, Lord. For anyone, Lord, that doesn't know you, that wants to pray and ask for forgiveness, Lord, I pray that as they pray, Lord, you would meet them and just confirm in their hearts that you've heard them, that you've received their prayer, that they're forgiven, Lord, and their name is now written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Lord, would you give them your Holy Spirit as you've promised to give them the power to live for you, to walk with you. And Lord, just um, plug them into a church where they can grow in their knowledge of you, Lord. I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.